People, this is some very innovative vomit. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the world of cinema and all of its eccentricities. I'm your host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Yolanda and Steve Groupie, Andrew Raphael. Duplication. <laughs> oh, they say duplication far too many times in this film, <laughs> in a very like limited time period. Yeah, I think they thought it was funny, but it's not. No, it wasn't funny from like the beginning, and then they yeah. drew it out for about ten minutes. That's this whole film. Yes, 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 it is. <laughs> and for this week's episode, we're reviewing the cartoonish Christmas released 1992 film starring beloved improv actor Robin Williams and featuring a character called Al. That's right. I think you've guessed it. We're reviewing. Toys? Yes, toys! But is this whimsical comedy an overlooked classic? No, it's not. But before we tell you why, it's time to roll the trailer. From Barry Levinson, the Academy Award-winning director of Rain Man. (laughs) And Robin Williams, the star of Dead Poets Society. I'm in the mood for smoked chicken, how about you? comes the story of a man who makes jokes. I'm Leslie Zebo. <laughs> <laughs> makes love. I like you. Well, I like you too. <laughs> I think love is wonderful. And makes toys. Wow! How do you feel? Woozy. That's what we'll call it, the woozy helmet. This is a little uncomfortable, though. Well, that's supposed to go in your ear. Oh. And a man who makes war. Sit down, Leslie. I don't understand why Daddy let Uncle Leland take over Zebo Toys. I've moved in with the idea of putting in some war toys. You never made war toys at Zebo. So you've seen the screensaver, now see the film, or at least hear us complain about it for the next hour or so. Robin Williams is Johnny Improv, a manic stand-up comedian turned toy maker whose coffee has one too many spoonfuls of methamphetamine. When his uncle General Leland Zevo, I'm not making these names up, inherits the family business, Leslie Zevo, again not making these names up, suspects something ominous is happening to his whimsical toy factory. Nauseating music videos, gay jokes, war monologues, sexual harassment in the workplace, toy gun battles and Robin Williams experiencing sexual climax follow in this film the whole family can enjoy. Strap in, folks. I think this may be a long one. Not to mention endless streams of more nightmare fuel. Oh, absolutely. There was so much I could have in that list that I actually had to limit myself from uh, from including. I've whittled that down. Yeah. <laughs> so, Andy, you chose toys to subject us to for this week's torture session. It's turning into therapy, this. <laughs> so you chose toys for this week. Tell us a little bit about your reasoning why. Will this hold up in court? Yeah, I'm extremely sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know why I chose this. It's been on our list for ages. It's one of our original films that we chose way back when, when we first compiled our best forgotten movies list. This was right up top, and for one reason or another, we just didn't get round to it. And I'm not sure why. I think the film has always been a bit of a curio for me, because I did not see it until very recently. But my dad had it on video. Yeah. Like he had a at the time video release. So when it was released on home video in 93, my dad had a copy of it. 
because uh, he is a big fan of Robin Williams. Who wasn't a big fan of Robin Williams back then? Yeah, and this was a, I would say, released in the middle of a particularly successful and fruitful period for him. Yeah. And this is the black sheep within that um, group of films. That is to put it lightly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So just to take your angle that you're approaching this film from, Mm -hmm. this wasn't a film that you had seen in your childhood years. It's a film that you've actually come round to later on in life. Yeah, and I'm very thankful for that. (laughs) (laughs) I think if I'd seen this at the time, I would have been traumatised. Oh, I have a long-standing history with this film. That probably explains a lot about me, actually. It was one of those films that I think my gran had it on VHS that she had bought for us for whenever she was minding us. And anybody who spent time with their grandparents knows that they have, like, always a very limited VHS collection and you end up watching (laughs) the same films over and over again while you're there. Toys was one of them. Back when I was a kid, I actually, I liked it, but I didn't really know what it was about. It was just colourful and I was stupid and young. (laughs) But it was also, like, I didn't get it. Even back then, I didn't get it. And watching it now, so many years later, it wasn't a film that I held fondly or anything like that. It's always a film that, after the fact, I've thought, yeah, that's probably really bad, that film. Yeah. And watching it, all of my suspicions were confirmed. This is a very bad film. I would say it's quite a misleading film as well, given it's... I mean, even if you looked at the original video box, yeah, the kind of impression you would get of the film is it's not that film. No. A movie called Toys starring Robin Williams and you have a picture in your mind what that film's going to be like and this is as far away from that as you can possibly think. And it's coming out at the height of family-friendly Robin Williams film as well because yeah, around yeah. about the same time you've got Fern Gully and Aladdin is actually out on the cinema at the time of the release of Toys. Yeah, and then you've got films like hook and mrs doubtfire book ending i'm not sure whether he made any other films jumanji no that's a bit later i think that's 95 yes uh he would have done like something like awakenings wasn't hook 93 this is 92 91 for some reason i thought hook was after toys it's actually before toys yeah although i think that's something we need to maybe bring up now that for a film released in december 92 it feels way older than that oh very much so and i always thought it was i can't quite equate it to being released actually after aladdin or even hook to be honest i watched hook recently yeah or even mrs doubtfire yeah exactly just to frame this against the films i'm watching currently i actually watched jumanji and hook very recently with my four-year-old just because we're going through some family-friendly films to pass the lockdown time She's enjoying this Robin Williams phase as well, but I would no way subject it to toys. There's, there's no <laughs> chance that that is going to happen. I am not ready to scar her for life. So I'm actually like framing it against the films of that era for Robin Williams, and it does stick out like a sore thumb. It feels like something that's early 80s, at least. Yeah, it feels like a mid to late 80s film. Yeah. And I think when we go into the background of its formulation and gestation, it may explain why. Well, before we actually begin our discussion on the film, it's always best to actually lay down some context as to the making of the film as well, just so that we understand Mm -hmm. how this film came to be. And I understand that you have some information about the making of this film as well, but I would say that the one thing that I have really is that I know it is a passion project of Barry Levinson's. Yes. And it was something that was over 10 years in the making for him. Mm -hmm. So that plays into what you've just mentioned, that it does actually feel rooted much earlier because I feel like when it was thought up, it was like, say, early 80s, in fact, or maybe even late 70s. Mm. One of the things that I also have is that when Sherry Lansing took over as head of production for 20th Century Fox, this is in 1980, 
this was the first movie on her development slate. Yeah. So so it still took that amount of time, and it wasn't until Barry Levinson actually won an Oscar that he had the clout to make toys. This is like the culmination <laughs> of his entire career, what it was building towards, his passion project. Yeah. I would actually describe toys as a film. It does make sense when you compare it to Rain Man because toys feels like a film in which every character in this film is Rain Man. Yeah. <laughs> you know? everybody is on the spectrum somewhere i think the thing to look at as well with this film is that this was intended to be his directorial debut and i was just thinking if this had been his directorial debut i'm pretty much doubtful that we would have had any other barry levinson films oh my god could you imagine (laughs) there would be no rain man no good morning vietnam no is it diner oh of course yeah yeah no bugsy no sleepers no no wag the dog no sphere (laughs) small mercy (laughs) oh i actually quite like sphere but that's another uh, episode entirely isn't it definitely but yeah and i think he most recently made bombshell the political film about fox news i've not followed his career lately but i I will say did you watch the making of featurette that's online i did but not recently i did watch it a couple months ago Honestly, for me, it's like the Phantom Menace making of, in which, unbeknownst yeah. to the filmmakers, it completely describes why the film failed and why it doesn't work. Yeah. And the filmmakers don't even realise that they're explaining it so <laughs> succinctly. Only it's like eight yeah. minutes long rather than the making of Phantom Menace thing, like it's an hour long. Yeah. Because it actually begins with the line, the whole feature is hung on this premise of, describing a movie can sometimes be as difficult as making an elephant fly. And it's like, no, 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 that's what fucking log lines are for. You know, if you can't describe your movie, there's a problem. <laughs> what is the log line of this film? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Well, no, that's probably it. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> yeah. I would say this film was actually in development for about 15 years because I was reading an article about somebody who'd managed to find all the different drafts of this film in some archive somewhere. They managed to dig out about three. The first one's dated 1979. Oh, wow. And then the second one's dated 1982. And it's somewhere in between the 1979 draft and the 1982 draft that things go wrong. Yeah. Because the 1979 draft has very little to do with the eventual film, whereas the 1982 draft is almost what we ended up with. Ah, right. So so do you know what's actually changed between those drafts? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. The name of the family and the actual company is completely different yeah i think it's called like panda man toys or something like that does it feel like it's at all based in the real world compared to the manic yes it's much more grounded it's based in a normal toy factory Mm. it's much more grounded in reality and it's more about the subtext i mean even talking about the subtext i actually think there's a half decent idea buried within this mess, this soup of a film, this whole idea about the future of warfare being based on children's video games because we are living in that reality right now. Drones are a thing. And also we do feel like at times the video games in which we do play feel like the propaganda for like Call of Duty at times certainly does feel like propaganda for the military in some way, shape or form. This film almost like guessed that. It's become prescient in a way for some of its subtext. But that is buried under so much soupy and nauseating, incomprehensible plot points and characters and weird character dynamics. And it made me feel gross and sweaty and a little bit anxious as well at times. Yeah, this is a film where they've obviously started with a particular idea 
and then they just kept adding, yeah. but not subtracting, and then things get bumped up against each other, yeah. but then those things aren't developed, so you're constantly asking why. Yeah, exactly. And nothing justifies itself for one against the other. Uh, I've just found it now. So the company in the original draft is called Panda Man Toys, mm -hmm. and the family name is Presswell rather than Zevo. The actual central plot is very similar. Yeah. The main difference is that there's no romance or anything between Leslie and Gwen. There's no... Actually, I don't think the Gwen characters are particularly there. Right. And the general actually dies at the end. Yeah, it's, it's weird that he doesn't die at the end of this one as well, considering he does spend the majority of the final act trying to kill the main characters. And it just seems a little bit more properly allegorical as well, because there's a thing at the end where it says the final scene shows the two tombstones side by side on them are the following... Kenneth T. Presswell, 1910 to 1979, may joy and innocence prevail. And then it says, Leland H. Presswell, 1914 to 1979, I disagree. <laughs> so. I can't believe that right there made me laugh more than I did yeah. throughout the entire film. Yeah. And the other big thing that is completely different is the character of Alsatia. Yeah. Who, as at this point, is a human. <laughs> The big thing with her is that she's supposed to be a bit special. Like It sounds like she didn't graduate from grade school yeah. until she was 18. So he essentially made Rain Man and thought, well, I can't do that again. Naturally, she's got to be a robot. But the weird thing about that is that when he actually goes to the 1982 draft, it's suddenly much closer to the final shooting script. And Alsatia was a robot by that point. Right. So Alsatia was a robot for 10 years of its development. <laughs> and I think that brings up bigger issues because if she's been a robot for that many years within all the different drafts, how the hell is it presented like it is in the film? Yeah. I mean, this is something maybe we should go into later, but it's such an afterthought. It is. And it opens up a huge can of worms. And I would actually say that that particular idea is much more sinister than anything the general does. Mm -hmm. That's actual nightmare fuel for me. <laughs> it definitely is. And I think also the flippancy that it's also oh, yeah. dealt with in the film adds to its nightmarish yeah. qualities. Because we're meant to just overlook it. Nobody's horrified by it. And as such, I'm I'm more horrified by it as a point. But yeah, yeah. we certainly certainly do need to go into that while we talk yeah, about the yeah. film as well. Just a few more pieces mm -hmm. of information that I do have about the making of the film. I have perused IMDB trivia, I'll let you know. <laughs> so I think it'll come as a surprise to no one that the look of the film drew inspiration from famed artist Rennie Marguerite who's known mm -hmm. for the likes of The Lovers, Golconda, and particularly The Son of Man, you will see mm -hmm. the likes of them referenced throughout Toys as well, like very... Overtly, yeah. Yeah, very overtly, yeah. You cannot escape... And on the poster. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Especially during, as well, the Yolanda and Steve music video. That's when yeah. it goes into overdrive, and I have a lot yeah, to say yeah. about that music video. <laughs> <laughs> and something that I didn't know before I had actually looked on IMDb trivia was that the electric jacket worn by Robin Williams was created by Italian actor Giancarlo Giannini, who's actually... <laughs> yeah we've covered before on Hannibal that is such a strange yeah. piece of trivia i had no idea apparently he's got he's got a passion for inventing apparently oh right i mean that made me think that he'd worked in like he was working in special effects or something at the time that seems like an odd piece i imagine because the production designer is italian he's yeah. uh, ferdinando scarfiotti yeah. i wonder if whether they're friends and whether it was a favor 
but I would say as trivia goes, that's as bunk as you, as you can get. It really is. There's even a special mention of it in the credits where it says the jacket was designed by Giancarlo Giannini. And you know what? It's fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to c- confirm, it is the jacket that does make all of the noises. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Because it can be one of a number of jackets. I think he wears a smoking jacket at another point. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say. I'm, I'm, I'm holding back so much right now. I think to sum this up, I think this is a very rare film for us to review where I don't think a single thing in the film works. Oh, you are 100% correct. Because we have reviewed films in the past where the film's dog shit, but there might have been something in there that had potential or worked. Yes. Whereas I don't think anything in this film works. Everything's slightly off. Exactly. I mean, like I say, other than the, the, the that one piece of... It, well, I, I was going to call it subtext, but it's more text in this film, but the way yeah, they yeah. deal with it. But the idea of <laughs> yeah. this whole drone war thing, drone warfare thing, and uh, propaganda for kids about warfare and them being trained for future wars and that, like, that sounds like a good idea for another film entirely. Mm-hmm. One that perhaps isn't aimed at the family market, but more of the, um, like, Pelican Brief type. <laughs> um, like yeah. mom thriller from back in the day. But mm. um, yeah, I don't think from top to bottom there is anything that actually works. Even like that one thing, a sliver of a good idea, is dealt with so poorly that, I mean, I, I've got to say, I mean, you know what, I'm gonna, going to go into it. There's not really much in the way of uh, background that you, we can really say from this point other than it was like 12 no. years in the making. Um I've actually attempted to watch this film three times over the past week. And one of the times I got really quite drunk and put it on. And I was in such a anxious sweat by the 40 minute mark. And I was so furious with the film that I had to turn it off. And so three attempts this week and it culminated in a hate watch from the night before last. And I've done nothing but think about it since. I'm just stewing over it now. But yeah, there's there's nothing that works about it. And in fact, my opinion of Barry Levinson has gone down quite considerably since since seeing this film mm. again. Which yeah. is strange because I never had that strong of a reaction as a kid. But I did know that it's it's not good. It's not a good film. No. It was just part of, oh, it's, it's a kooky Robin Williams film from back in the day. Ugh, no, it's not. Even Robin Williams, an actor that I love and grew up with that's very much part of our generation um that really grew up with him in our films that we watched he is awful in this so poorly miscast as well yeah actually to say that this is a a robin williams film would probably be false advertising because to be honest he's not in it an awful lot He's that. He's not the. He's not the central character. No, it's um, Michael Gambon. I felt was Michael. Ga- I reckon Michael Gambon probably has at least a third more screen time than Robin Williams in this film. Yeah, especially for like the first forty minutes of the film, mm-hmm. Robin Williams is yeah. a supporting character, and it's all yeah. about um, General Leland Zevo's journey through this toy company, of which I yeah. also have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've just got to dive headlong into this clusterfuck. Really, yeah. there's no, there's no two ways about. I mean, there's no, there's no form to it. No, um, it's. I don't even know. Uh, the, the the thing that that 
bash like I genuinely don't know how this got greenlit. No. I, I even think... even even for an Oscar yeah. winner, I don't know how this got greenlit. This is a a um this is a uh, a perfect example of a studio misfire and why passion projects mostly don't work. Yeah. Yeah, I I think so as well. I I think the reason that it did get green lit is simply as mentioned the Oscar, but also the casting of Robin Williams at the height of yeah. Robin Williamsness. Um, those are the only two reasons I can ever see this film having been made at the time. Yeah. Because even in the making of feature it, there's there's like a, a whole section where it's just the person making the feature it, the narrator asking the actors in the film. What is the film about? And they all say just a variation of, I don't know. And Barry Levinson <laughs> comes in and says, oh, he's banking on the idea that when it's finally assembled and made, that people will go, oh, right, now I get it. But that time never came. Like, people just continue to, after the film was made, to go, what the fuck was that? And I think, honestly, I will ask everybody, you know what, stop stop listening to this, watch that featurette. If you want to know why this film yeah. failed, watch that featurette, it's eight minutes, and then come back to us. But yeah, so it is a long ingestation film, and do you think, it's weird, because I've heard it described as being overthought, and over-designed, and overproduced and all of that type of thing, over-directed, but it's, it's weird in a way, because at times I absolutely get that, I can see where he's taken something and just thought too long about it, built into something else, stripped it down into another thing and then built into something else again. And it has got that feeling of that. But at other times, it also feels like really oddly hollow and not thought out enough. Yeah, I would describe it as being an overthought bad idea. <laughs> yeah. So it's a bad idea in the first place. I think the central core idea is flawed. Yeah. And then they just built on that. Mm. So it's got creaky foundations and they've just kept adding and... They've never asked themselves the question, who is this film for? That is the big question that hasn't been asked. Yeah, I mean, because I, I genuinely don't know who this film is for. I mean, the only person this film is for is Barry Levinson and his perhaps his wife who co-wrote it with him. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually have in my notes here. But also pondering for whom this film was made, I think the answer to that question is Barry Levinson, and that's your lot. That's what I actually wrote. That's yeah. my first note I wrote. I would say somewhere down the line there is probably a situation where this film could have worked if all the elements had been completely rejigged around yeah but because they kept adding things and also for for example hiring i think robin williams is actually quite a big a big detractor actually he's he's actually part of the problem i really think so i also think the improv is some of the worst robin williams improv i've seen even in the making of feature it quickly devolves into and I don't know if this is actually included on the teaser trailer, but he quickly devolves into him doing just racist caricatures <laughs> of, like, Chinese people coming to see Toys yeah. the Movie. And that's immediately in the featurette as well. And I was like, oh, well, that sums up the rest of this film. It feels like they've almost banked on that to, to save the film in some regard. And it's just, it's not even right for the character. No, no, it's completely wrong for the character. I mean, the core of the idea is that the... Old toy maker is dying. He feels that his son is not ready to take over. Therefore, yeah. he enlists his brother, who he knows is the least appropriate person to take over the toy factory. Yeah, He enlists him to take over as a test for his son to make him grow up. 
And that is, yeah. I imagine, where they were going. But mm-hmm. because they hired Robin Williams, it makes the whole idea not work because Robin Williams is not adhering to this character that is written. Because one, because of the improv, and generally his actual age as well, I think he's far too old yeah. for this part. He should have been someone either in their early 20s or early 30s at most. I think he's written in the original script as being 34 and he was like 41 when they did this or something like that. So Yeah. And because they relied so much on the improv, everything else about that character just goes out the window. But I think also because Robin Williams is part of the issue because of that, but it's definitely the way that he is presented in the film that is a a big issue. Yeah, I agree with you. I definitely think that Robin Williams is certainly a heavy part of the problem. But also just in the way that it's written on the page, Going from your setup, it's the father thinks his son is, he describes him as being a flake and irresponsible. But yet, everything that we see of that character for at least the first 40 minutes of the film is dedication to the yeah. company <laughs> and all of its core values. Yeah. There's no reason whatsoever, no actual visible reason that this character has to pass over his son as the next Toy Factory owner whatsoever. No, he seems like he's on top of everything and knows how everything works. Yeah. He works well with all his employees and there doesn't seem to be any issue. And it's also as well a character talking about the lack of responsibility of his son while he's wearing a fucking hat with a that's that, <laughs> with a little propeller on it that's linked up to his heart. Talk about yeah. lack of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. The first 20 minutes just sum up all of the issues with the film. This would probably be a good moment to talk about that opening title yes, sequence. Yes, the, the, the ballet of sorts yeah, with the kids. Because I, I think that just shows the clear lack of direction and just, I don't know, It's I, I would say it's like a, uh, a travesty of filmmaking. I mean, this is where people go to movie jail for opening sequences yes. like that. Because I would say it's hands down one of the weirdest opening title sequences I've ever seen. What's it supposed to mean? I've no idea. It doesn't introduce any of the main characters. It introduces that set, which is random in of itself. Yes, it's just simply there for the end, for that end set piece to take place. I think they have about two more scenes during the film there as well. Yeah, I just feel like it's there for that song as well. It's like they wrote the yeah. song beforehand and they go, we need to shoehorn this in somewhere. And I think also because it was a Christmas movie, they were like, oh, we need to have something Christmas Something about Christmas yeah. in here. But because it doesn't feature any of the main characters, like that would be a perfect place to introduce Leslie. Yeah. If you were going to, and he does not feature. At first I was thinking, oh, is the Santa Claus in the, in the plane going to be Leslie? Nope. Just yeah. some random guy. And it draws up so many questions as well because I'm like, who is this playing to? Who are these people that are watching this? Yeah. Again, every single scene in this film just brings up so many questions. I think if I'm really going into the logic of it, I think the logic might be to be like an operatic opening, like the opening of an opera where they have a number which summarizes the remainder of the show that you're about to watch the opera that you're about to see and i have a feeling that they're going for this operatic feel with the film in that this is going to summarize the whole list of tones and ideas that we're going to run through for the remainder of the i don't know four days that it takes to watch this film (laughs) (laughs) and but the thing is it doesn't even summarize the film nothing that we see here really ever comes into play and the tone is wildly different from the remainder of the film as well yeah and the song as well. We do need to talk about the song, uh, the music the cl- by Hans Zimmer and Trevor Horn. Yeah. Closing of the year. 
I do have to say one of our fine watcher of the show, Darren Lundberg, did mention that Closing of the Year is one of his favourite tracks. It's become one of his favourite Christmas tracks. But he did mention in context of outside of the film. <laughs> outside of the film. Yes, ex- exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> in the film, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever with, no. with this film. I think it's the fact that, okay, start with a song, but they start with two songs. So you have that, is it Tchaikovsky at the start, the ballet? Yeah. And that goes on for about three minutes. And then mm-hmm. the song starts. So I reckon, I think that scene's about five and a half minutes or something like that, six minutes, before anything starts. You've got six minutes of film before anything resembling a story starts. I mean, even the fact they get, like, Wendy on screen to sing it. It's Wendy from Wendy and Lisa who <laughs> sings the song. And I can't even get my head around it because I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Why? Uh, I, it just flummoxed me. <laughs> Talking about the music as well, like because I do know that they did bring in a variety of different artists to contribute to the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. And also, we've already made mention of one contradiction that's inherent in the plot, and it's set up with the character of Leslie Zevo and the information that we're told contrasted against the character that we're actually shown. Yeah, yeah. They don't line up. One thing as well, talking about the music that I also think offers a contradiction, is the Happy Worker song. That does not make sense for the film because the first time that we see the shop floor in which these toys are being assembled, this song is playing and it's almost like a Russian Stalin era communist <laughs> propaganda song about yeah. how happy it is to work for this place. But yeah. it sounds so fucking miserable. It sounds yeah. awful, like not a good place to work for, but everybody seems to be very much enjoying it. And then later on, it's supposed to be contrasted against how the workflow has been militarized and how things have devolved. And they play this remixed version of the song that honestly just sounded exactly the same. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, this place is now miserable. Look how they've bastardized this place now. But the song that's playing is just a very slightly remixed version of that song. I should say very poorly remixed version of that song. One, the song in itself is weird and creepy and has very sinister undertones in of itself. But the fact that they got Tori Amos to sing it as well is just... (laughs) Hammers the nail in the coffin because, you know, she's... I mean, she wasn't known, really, at this point. This is one of the first things that she actually did. Oh, is it? I didn't actually know that. I'm pretty sure her first album came out the same year, so getting someone like her to sing the song, I mean, she's known for very sort of cynical, very political writing. I mean, she's kind of the downbeat Kate Bush... Well, exactly, yeah. (laughs) That did make me think, because of that type of soundtrack that has been used, it made me think, there's a parody at play here that Barry Levinson isn't letting us in on, Mm. or he thinks he's letting us in on, but he's not, it's just lost. And I feel like that sums up the film as well, in that I think that this has been in Barry Levinson's head so long, and he's thought about it so much, that he's now taken for granted what the audience knows and the audience's position on this film. Like, he thinks that, oh, they're just going to get it because they're going to get the world, but the rest of the information, the information that puts everything into context is all in his head. It's like if somebody made the middle book of a fantasy series and just expected you to bring all that baggage of reading the fantasy series and everything like that to the film. Almost like Jupiter Ascending. I I had the same feeling about Jupiter Ascending, where it was... uh, It felt like the Wachowskis were just expecting us to understand the way this world works. And I had no fucking clue. 
But yeah, it, it's got that feeling. It, I feel like it's spent too long in Barry Levinson's mind. Yeah, this is a film that you can sense that the director's got lost in his own vision. Yeah. But there are other external things, external contributors that are impacting on that vision and are in of themselves detractors. So as we're talking about this Happy Worker song, yeah, this will be a good time to talk about the production design because that factory set is, again, pure nightmare fuel. Yeah. With those it, big it, it, heads and stuff. It just, oh my God. Well, it made me feel nauseous in a way that the whole thing about the sets for me is I get rather sweaty and nauseous when I'm in very large, empty environments. Like, for example, if I enter a cathedral and I look up and I see the height of the structure that I'm in because mm -hmm. it's so vast and empty. And this film gave me that feeling that there's these large sets, like, for example, the uh, secretary's room, the receptionist room, yeah, yeah. in which you have that weird staircase. It may look colourful to the eye, but it is so vastly empty. And every room has that feeling to it. Like, the ceilings are way too high, the walls are too far apart but there's nothing in there to really dress the set. Yeah. And it's just open, negative spaces. And it started to make me feel sweaty whilst watching the film. Yeah, I would describe the look of the film as early learning centre gone wrong. <laughs> it has that early learning centre slash mother care. I mean, did you ever go to Children's World? I did not, no. It was in Manchester Retail Park. You know the one they've just knocked down that's like uh, in that new Islington bit? Yeah. There was a big children's store in the 80s and 90s called Children's World, and it had that kind of pastel colour building block look. Yeah. So it was like a huge version of Early Learning Centre, and it had a really cool slide in there, so I used to go in there quite a lot. But it was like that, but yeah. as if designed by some sort of psychopath. <laughs> because I genuinely think the production design was like, this is a world gone wrong. Yes. Because you can think about Toy Shop, you know, Toy Shop, Toy Factory. There's lots of images that spring to mind. This is not one of them. I mean, no. this is just fucked up. I mean, if they wanted to create some sort of whimsical world, they fucked up majorly because this is fucking creepy with a capital C. It's like oppressive. Oppressive is the word that I was grasping for earlier. Yeah. It feels incredibly oppressive. I mean, when it comes to the actual design of the film, I think it's best summarised as a migraine simulator. Yeah. Like, if you want to know what a migraine feels like, watch this film. <laughs> I also, if it's okay, want to speak about one of the characters in the film. I've just <laughs> looked at my notes here. And <laughs> I feel like there's a piece of dialogue in the film that is actually somewhat of a slight to one of its main characters, and that is to Michael Gambon when he's speaking to his father. And they have a whole section that's based around Michael Gambon's accent and the explanation as to why it is not American like the rest of the characters. Yeah. And his father as well that he is speaking to is very much, I wrote here, he is a Rowley Birkin QC from The Fast Show, who's very, very drunk at the time. And... <laughs> I feel like the whole section in which she describes having been to dialect coaches and that type of thing and it not working is very much what happened behind the scenes Yeah, yeah. before before Michael Gambon actually began shooting. Because I will say that on a casting level, this film is incredibly... Like, all of the character dynamics are really strange. Michael Gambon doesn't feel like he's related to either 
Robin Williams or Donald O'Connor. And then you have <laughs> Michael Gambon's son, who is played by oh, LL God. Cool J. And it's like, none of these characters belong in the same family whatsoever. They feel no. like they're removed by about 15 generations each. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like someone's not saying something somewhere. Like, <laughs> you were all adopted. Like, yeah. all of you. <laughs> there are some secrets being kept in some dark corners of this family. Yeah, like I said, every single bloody thing in this film is off. The casting's off. Yeah. The production design is off. The music's off. Every single scene just brings up questions. Like, you get, with, like that scene with his father. How the fuck is he still alive? And what is that commenting on? And also, you have that line as well, which I mentioned in the write-up gay jokes. Like, this is a film that has been marketed towards kids. And at one point, uh, Michael Gambon's character says, one of my own men tried to frag me. And the dad, like, grumbles to himself. He's like, and then you hear, big cocks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're like that. And he goes, no, no, frag me. Frag me. They tried to kill me. And I was like... That was, one, it's very Rolly Birkin. It's, you know, I was very, very drunk at the time. But also, like, this this is a PG film that has one of the characters muttering big cocks. Yeah, one gets the feeling that this is an adult film that's been retrofitted at some point (laughs) by the studio during pre-production to be a more family-friendly venture that is geared towards Christmas time. But that was never the intention of the director. And he's gone, okay, let's do that. And then just left everything else in. Yeah. But again, it's just symptomatic of the lack of direction or him actually being blind to his own vision. He's thought about it so much. He's become blind to any kind of filmmaking instincts that he may have had on any previous film before or since. Yeah. I mean, it's going to take me some time to get through these notes as well. I'm just reading through them. I actually can see that the last note that I actually wrote about the film, which, (laughs) again, I think you'll know which scene I'm talking about, but I wrote the note, Looney Platoons, (laughs) which is the final battle between all of the toys. (laughs) But yeah, I think Looney Platoons is the uh, summary of the last act of that film. But like I say, we've mentioned just before, even things that you would think are surefire hits like Robin Williams at this time just do not work. And especially the relationship, I would say, between him and... Is her name Gwen? The Robin Wright Yeah, character? Gwen. Yeah. yeah, Gwen. Every single scene between them, and I will say, actually, every single scene in the film goes on about 10 minutes too long. There's a clear stopping point. I would say that the clearest example of that would be both the duplicating scene and the scene of Robin Williams and Gwen flirting in the cafeteria as well. And it's just an excuse for Robin Williams to go through some improv. It's like, they're laughing, but I'm not. One, the scene goes on far too long, and nothing is as funny as these characters think it is. You can apply that to every single scene in the film as well. Yeah, I I remember one reviewer describing Robin Wright's character as just being there to look nice and laugh at Robin Williams. (laughs) Yeah. That's her character. Yeah, that's right. And I would say even the relationship that Robin Williams has with her, this is going to be my number two point. I feel like there's something going on with that relationship that just wouldn't work with a film now because there is a almost sexual harassment thing taking place with Robin Williams using his power in terms of his position within the company 
to flirt with somebody and make them fall in love with him. Yeah. And she has been hired solely as well to be a mate yeah. for him. That is her, her whole purpose, not just within the film, but also as a character level within that company. In an actual literal sense, she has just been hired, not based on her merit as a toy maker or whatever, I don't know, whatever the fuck she does, but she's just been hired to be his mate eventually. Yeah, yeah because they've met all the criteria on zevo.com, you know, <laughs> zevomatch.com. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I would say that shot of Joan Cusack staring at that scene is when you actually view it in context of what yeah. happens later i find that incredibly uh, uncomfortable no it's I mean, like she's the ash of the toy factory <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's just something entirely uncomfortable about every scene with john cusack in yeah especially when you know what she is yeah i mean yeah it's just <sighs> i don't know what i don't, don't know like where to it. start because I the thing is like you've got it. all these you've got these weird things the tones well, the tone's so all over the place that it's been whacked out of the film. The tone's non-existent. It's like, it's just... It varies from scene to scene. Yeah. I would say there are a couple of little things that work. One of the only things I liked in the film was, I think, a couple of the scenes where you see Leslie working with his employees. So I would say... Talking that, about the, the sick scene, for example. The sick and... scene and also the uh, the poop in the bath joke. Yeah. Which was actually quite funny because uh, someone else says, we've all done it. And then he goes to one of his other employers, this is not a shared experience. That's, I would say, one of the only Robin Williams things that works in the film. Because they're letting it be, it's a bit more organic. It's like, this is the kind of film that it should have been. Yeah. And if they'd done more of that, it might have been okay. Yeah, it's Yardley Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson as well, who actually makes the uh, the comment about uh, pooping in the bath. Everybody's done it. Yeah. I must say, I haven't either. <laughs> it's certainly not a shit experience on my side. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned things that actually worked. I will say that I wrote in my notes that there are two jokes that I did laugh at. And I actually wrote next to them, am I giving into the madness of toys at this point? Oh. One is the image of the spy robot that we see later on. At one point, Jamie Foxx, who appears in this film, yep. sends a spy robot to watch Robin Williams' character achieve climax. And the, <laughs> the the robot is actually wearing a little film noir jacket and hat combo, yeah. <laughs> which, which made me laugh. And then immediately following it in another scene, and it's such a stupid joke, but at that point I was willing to take anything to make me laugh. <laughs> But Michael Gambon's character runs over a cardboard cutout of LL Cool J <laughs> and thinks he's literally run him over. And that made me laugh. I think at that point, like I say, I was just grasping at anything. Like, modicum of joy in this nightmare. That The LA, LA? The LL Cool J <laughs> character is from another film entirely. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. I feel like all these characters are from different films as well. Like, mm-hmm. Not just different families, different films. <laughs> They're <laughs> all their own tone. And also, as well, I was thinking as well, they never nail down whether this is something that's stylized or realistic. Yeah. Because it flip-flops between the two constantly. There's times when it feels like this, okay, this is one of those films where it's out of time and it's very stylized and it exists in its own world. I.e., mm-hmm. for example, something like The Borrowers, like the, or the mouse film hunt. version. Yeah, something like that, where it exists out of time in its yeah. own thing. And then there's other times, like, for example, when they go to the arcade, 
that nope, this is this feels very yeah, like it's very grounded in, in that particular era. They can't decide where they want to be. No, and I and I actually think that the otherworldliness of this fantasy world actually like it, it really takes away, it really detracts from this core premise of kids being used as sources of propaganda experiments and being trained for future warfare ideas and that type of thing. The weirdness and whimsical nature of this world actually takes away from that. Because essentially, because everything that we actually see of this world outside of that storyline is so whimsical. It's got no real world grounding for that. It's got no tension, no suspense. There's no stakes about what he's doing because this doesn't feel like it actually takes place in the real world. It doesn't feel like it's going to have real world ramifications because the only glimpses that we do see of the real world are in the arcade. Everything else is just so whimsically over the top. But it's when they try and shoehorn things in as well, like that are very real world, like... Uh, talking about Vietnam and and even things like MTV. And I think this brings up another thing. I feel like a lot of these ideas and even some of the working relationships were decided a long time before this film was made because I think that's another reason why I feel this film... I mean, there's nothing wrong with a film feeling dated, like being of its time, but I feel like this film was from another era even when it was made because I feel like a lot of the things in it were put in in that 1982 draft yeah, and were not changed. Things like that Yolanda and Steve video, which is a, a Talking Heads ripoff. And Talking Heads were very big in 1982. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they've written that in. Cool. Talking Heads style number. Mm-hmm. And then never changed it. No, yeah. And even like going down to working with Trevor Horn and using Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, which is like 1984. I feel like a lot of these things were nailed down and in place and then times moved on. Yeah, that was one of the things I wanted to speak to you about in regards to that Yoland and Steve section of the film, the music video, is that even for the time that this film was made, that does feel very dated. You feel like they should be, I mean, what what early 90s bands really should this be playing on? Oh, I don't know. I'm trying Um, to think. We're, We're on the cusp of grunge. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you've got so, you've either got something like grunge, or you've got things like you know all the Michael Jackson music. Oh, videos. exactly. Yeah. In fact, Michael Jackson should be the actual thing that this should be going for around, <laughs> yeah. around that time, yeah. <laughs> and all of the sinister overtones that come with, including Michael yeah. Jackson. I will say that if it did have a moment in which it did reference a Michael Jackson music video, even after the revelations about Michael Jackson's personal life, I don't think it'd make this film any worse. It can't get any worse. <laughs> no. But talking about that music video as well, and I want to skip over the idea that this was actually used in one of the Mission Impossible films as well, because that <laughs> that part is definitely been used much better in Mission Impossible. But one thing also, one further thing, is that before the music video actually begins, they just simply project the other side of the hallway onto the screen yeah. perfectly. Why don't they just do that? That's going to be far better than having to create a music video where they have to be present to act out in front of the security camera. Yep, because Arthur Mallet wouldn't have to put the MTV label on the on the security <laughs> scanner. Even if they were doing the music video idea, which is ludicrous in itself, why did they not just pre-record the music video in its yeah. entirety? Why do they actually have to be in it live? And if you're the secure, security guard, why aren't they thinking... 
Fucking hell, this music video has been going on for about 25 minutes now. Yeah, and also as well, just for the type of security guards that they use, they are not the core audience for this type of music. No. They would, they would not be the kind of people that would like this kind of thing. No, and they don't even recognize the previous owner of the company's son, who works in that business day in, day out. Yeah. <laughs> you know but, what I felt like with this film? Like yeah. the madness and chaotic nature of this film. It's very much of a kinship with Cats. Oh, yeah. And I know I've got Cats fresh in the mind anyway because we covered it on a previous episode of Popcorn Digest, but I kept going back to it in my mind with that I felt entirely out of my depth from the first <laughs> from the first frame to the last, but it wasn't nearly as hilarious <laughs> as Cats. Yeah. Going back to that opening as well, the fact that you have that five, six-minute-long music scene, then you have a little brief preamble, and then it goes straight to a funeral. I mean, having a funeral in the first 10 minutes of a family film is never a great idea. And for a family film, it's so melancholic all the way through as well. Even at the moment where it's supposed to be at its most fun and joyful, it's still got this like tinge of weird sadness to the whole thing that totally all feels completely off. I mean, at one point, again, I keep coming back to it as a thing, but we get to listen to Robin Williams have sex with someone and we practically hear him moaning. And that's for all of the family to hear. It's a weird old film. Yeah, and they play some of these really inappropriate things for laughs as well, like that that whole Jamie Foxx peeping Tom thing, I imagine they thought was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But it's creepy as fuck. And this is where having Robin Williams in the film doesn't work for so many reasons, because one, it's taken away from that character being some like sort of childlike and naive and yeah. anything like that because there's just too many adult references and quips in his performance to i mean there's very little of what that character is supposed to be in the film yeah and also just yeah hiring robin wright who i'm pretty sure was like 22 or something like that when she was cast in this film acting against robin williams who was 41 you don't buy it even outside of its creepiness you don't mm -hmm. buy that she would fall for him yeah and there's no reason to as well because that whole romance could you could just throw that out of the film and you wouldn't it wouldn't be any different you know nothing would change yeah she's just another character in the film there's no real live lessons learned with that character none whatsoever other than now that he's got a girlfriend which, considering how he acts in the rest of the film, there's no reason why he wouldn't have one anyway. Exactly. I mean, they even have a moment as well with her where they get to hammer home the message that this is a man lacking responsibility in his place in the business. Yeah, where she yeah. says, well, why don't you just talk to him to find out what he's doing rather than just sitting here and thinking about it? And you get this moment where he's like, oh, well, I'll do it tomorrow because I don't like confrontation. And then in the very next scene, is him just approaching him. Yeah. And discussing what he's doing in secret and it's yeah it's, it's it's like things like that don't make sense like i can't believe that nobody didn't pick up on it on a storytelling way like looking at the script nobody said well that doesn't work because in this scene he's saying that he can't do this thing because you know he lacks the ability to confront others and then nothing happens in terms of development. And the very next scene, that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. That line does not ring true when he's saying, oh, maybe tomorrow. Because why is he being hesitant now? Like, he's been pretty assertive yeah. and confident in his own abilities and in, like, the abilities of everyone else in the company up until now. 
I yeah. Don't, yeah, it just it feels like that's a remnant of whatever the character was in earlier drafts that has been completely overwritten by Robin Williams' performance. Like, yeah. they just let him do anything he wants in this film. And I get it. It's because Robin Williams is a funny guy, and probably on set, he is very funny to be around. I yeah. bet the crew had a great time with Robin Williams as an actor because I know that people always talk about him in a very positive way those that have worked with him in that he doesn't switch off in terms of his comedy he's always going through it and I get the feeling that with this film he was just so funny on set that they thought that that would bleed through to the film itself but it hasn't it's been lost because on the page the character doesn't work and what Robin Williams is bringing to the film is anti-ethical to what the character is and should be and I think it's down to the fact that because that worked so well on their previous collaboration, yeah, which was Good Morning Vietnam, of course, that he either didn't want to work another way, and I'm talking about Barry Levinson here, he mm-hmm. wanted to work in the same way because he must have had a very good time doing Good Morning Vietnam and it paid off. And wanting to repeat that success, but the subject material is, is not right for it, but also maybe not having the ability to work another way. Because another example of using that in a different way would be um, Gus Van Sant for Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And the way that they utilise Robin Williams' improvisation skills in that film, but do it in a way that feels much more naturalistic and organic within the, the film itself and its characters. I mean, yeah. I was well, watching that scene the other day about him talking about his wife farting in her yeah, sleep. and he misses his wife's farts now. Yeah, and that whole scene being improvised and Matt Damon's laughs being genuine and how they capture that but how it's entirely appropriate for that character and yeah their world and the meaning of the film yeah it fits the frame yeah. and the mold of that character and i think that's the skill of the director knowing when and where to use that whereas i feel like barry levinson just did not know how to utilize robin williams mm. in this film but at the end of the day i think whatever they would have done Robin Williams is just not right for this character. Yeah. Just not right for this film. Or if they did, it would have meant retooling the entire film, which I think they maybe should have done. To be honest, looking at this film, I don't think it's a film that should have been made. No, not at all. It's not a film that should have been made in any way, shape or form. I think another project should be made. It's okay for some films not to happen. And this is a prime example of that. But if it had been made, if it was to be retooled, then it would have to be without Robin Williams. And I'd keep talking about Robin Williams as one of the most negative aspects of the film. But as mentioned, nothing works in this film. And it's more so really that I'm surprised by how little of Robin Williams' performance actually works for me. Because even in the worst films that he's in, he normally shines through. Yeah, And I still normally find Robin Williams endearing as an actor and as a character. In this, it has absolutely none of those qualities because it's just a combination of the character being wrong for him, also the directing style being wrong for him as well because there's no sense of restraint when it should be exercised, and also Robin Williams being wrong for them. Yeah. So all in all, it's a pretty good film. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's just so many fucking ideas. Like, there's just shit idea upon shit idea. What about the sea monster? I was just going to talk about the sea swine. <laughs> and why is it called the sea swine? Like, what, what <laughs> fucking name is that for something? And what is it? 
Oh, I think when I was a kid, that was the bit that scared me the most. That's the bit I remember being scared of because, like you say, what is it? And there is a point in which we are led to believe for a moment that it eats Robin Williams. And I still don't know how he escaped that whole section of the film because nope. even according to Michael Gambon, he just suspects that, well, that's Leslie dead. That's Leslie's Evo dead. He's actually quite surprised to find out he's alive later. I don't know what it is, what its purpose is. And yeah, I, d- I don't get it. No, and also I don't know how it's meant to get from A to B because it feels like in the last set piece that it's featured in, when it blows Alsatia's head off and also seemingly kills the general, but not. How the fuck is it under the uh, New York model? It seems to insinuate that there's water underneath that model. Yeah, I think, how, I think there's, how? there's one <laughs> shot, though, where we see it in a very darkened, not sewer, but utility corridor yeah but you can't really see it so even if you take that into account it still makes no sense that it's underneath the floorboards no oh fuck i, I mean i don't get it <laughs> and it has this kind of like it is it organic or is it mechanical or is it just i don't get it and i don't even know why it's there i mean even if you bring in kids to this film as well i mean there's already enough that's quite disturbing and upsetting by this point anyway mm. but in the final act as well it's like Gather around, children, and get to see all of your favourite childhood toys get blown to smithereens. <laughs> and the whole last act of the film is just this really sad music playing. It's like Saving Private Ryan if it was the cast of Toy Story. Yeah. <laughs> and when I saw this, I was very young. And I remember finding that whole section really upsetting as well. Oh, it goes on forever as well. It, it keeps keeps going. It's like uh, Barry Levinson really hates antique toys. <laughs> just wants to kill them all. Like, give me all the antique toys you can find. I just want to destroy them all. He's like George Lucas with the Star Wars Holiday Special for antique toys. Oh, yeah. It's like you can just replace all those with videos of the Star Wars Holiday Special. But, oh, God. I was just thinking of some of that imagery as well, like of those toys. That bit where LL Cool J is cornered in the corridor <laughs> with those two ones and then that thing where it opens up and there's the blue face with the with the, the gun iris. in its mouth oh it's hideous yep it's just absolutely terrifying that is stuff that you'll never get out of your mind no no that's the kind of thing that i think if i took my children to see it i think that's the point in which i'd already be composing the letter that i would be sending to the studio <laughs> <Yeah>. afterwards <laughs> i mean this needs to come with some sort of like if you're of a nervous disposition, do not watch this film. You know, <laughs> yeah. if you suffer from like vertigo or something, you know. Yeah. What rating was this film again? NC-17. Oh, God. <laughs> but also, yeah, there's an Ewok moment, like that famous Ewok moment from Return of the Jedi when one of them dies and the other one tries to get it back up and realizes it's dead and then starts yeah. crying. It has that moment with a couple of toy bears where yeah. one of them gets the head blown off and the other one just sidles up beside it and starts crying. I was like, what <sighs> the fuck am I watching? It's like at this point in the film as well, it almost tries to lead us to believe that these toys have some sort of soul. Not a sentience, but like an innocence that's being destroyed here. <sighs> yeah, I feel like, yeah, again, we're talking about the subtext. And some of it's just text, and some of it's so sub that I like again. No, oh, no one but Barry Levinson really knows what this film is going for. Yeah, but I would say with that final battle, it's so poorly choreographed and edited as well. 
it's like they lost some footage somewhere and, and tried to cover it up with, I just wrote on my notes, blur! <laughs> like, there's so much slow-mo blur. Slow motion, yeah. And the other thing as well, like, right, okay, so they've got Trevor Horn to co-write the score. And there's a huge section in this battle where they use Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, like a remix version. Yeah. And I'm thinking, right, in all logical sense, right, if you're, you've got a battle scene and you're using Trevor Horn slash Frankie Goes to Hollywood music. Yeah. Why are you not using Two Tribes? Right? <laughs> or even their cover of War. Yeah. Like, why Welcome to the Pleasure Dome? Because it's got nothing to do with War. No, that no. That song. It feels completely out of place as well. Yeah, I don't... And there's just things where the film goes really dark. It goes into sort of black humour, mm-hmm. which you can tell that this film has not been originally intended to be a family film. Like that thing where Leland just leaves Leslie to be eaten by the, the sea swine. You've got all the weird things going on with the nurse. Oh, God. I mean, I've got that written down as well. The nurse, that, um, yeah, that LL Cool J's a bit on the side. Yeah, and then you've got strange gags, like when they're having the meeting with the other generals, when it's all done in x-ray, and it all feels very mm. Total Recall with the skeletons. And you've got that gag with the the surgical scissors being in that guy. And I'm like, what's this for? I, like, and, why and is this that, relevant? The way that scene ends as well, with one skeleton strangling the other, is again, just something out of my nightmares. I mean, speaking about what you've just mentioned, I've actually got a list that I wrote down while I was watching the film of inappropriate gags and yeah. references. And um, I've got the the Last Temptation of Barbie being one of them, the reference yeah. to The Last Temptation of Christ. Um, I, I found did that quite funny, though. <laughs> That's one of the only other jokes that works. I, I did write down Total Recall as well. I've got yeah. the Michael Jackson before and after gag. Yeah. And then we've got references to both Pattern and Apocalypse Now. So... I mean, like, who is the who is it for? Who's this film yeah, for? And you've got the classic "I want to get laid" whilst holding up the devil puppet. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Which I, I don't know. There's so much that's inconsistent about this film as well because, like, just things like that where you've got that Robin Wright character riding the bike with stabilizers, but there's nothing. Yeah. To, it, everything's just so inconsistent. But that's what I mean about this film is that I wasn't joking when I said that this is a film in which all of the characters feel like they are Rain Man. I mean, I don't mean this in an offensive way to anybody with autism, but this is... I'm sorry, it's only going to be construed that way, but it does feel like every single character is on the spectrum in some way. Just because, for example, you've got the thing with Robin Wright's character, Gwen, having her stabilizers. You've got the Joan Cusack character as well. It doesn't feel like she can actually function in a society and has a complete lack of social skills as well. Everybody feels completely emotionally closed off and unable to communicate with each other in in a way that's natural. Everything's really forced or through the medium of jokes and improv. And then you have Michael Gambon's character that's clearly having a nervous breakdown. There's nobody in this film feels like they are well. And I, I'm concerned for every single character yeah. on display here. Yeah, I think that's the issue, that there's no anchor character. Yeah. There's a couple of wanker characters, though. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no character who's... I think if you're doing a film like this, where a lot of the characters are odd and weird, you need one normal character Yeah, that you can latch onto. It's a window into a madhouse. Yeah, it, it is. It is. <laughs> that's exactly how I would describe it as well. You know what? You've mentioned it before as well and about how upsetting it is. 
this scene, but I don't even think that we've spoke about John Cusack's character in that oh, revelation man. enough. I, I'm just because... gonna say this is because you know you know I have a phobia of like androids and things like that yeah. anyway. I just it creeps the fuck out of me. But one, why? Yeah, I have a feeling that somewhere along the line they've changed it to a robot because they have the. I think the idea is that they played on this notion that she is a toy herself, like she's a living doll. That's what I thought it was. But that's got lost somewhere way yeah. along the way. Like They must have thought that up in 1982 because obviously that's the draft where the idea of Alsatia being a robot, I think that's where it begins. And you can tell in a way because yeah, she's you know she lives in a doll's house. There's yeah. that thing at the beginning with her being a doll, playing with the doll's house. The way that she even dresses as the doll as well. She tries on all of the clothes. But when you look at it in context to the film... What is it for? Yeah. And it just opens up a whole can of worms. Like, just the very idea that a toy... It, it goes into sort of Halloween 3 territory. <laughs> oh, you my know. God. It really is Halloween 3. You're absolutely yeah. right. Where a toy factory is capable of creating lifelike uh, humanoid androids. It's just... It's baffling. You've hit the nail on the head for me, just in terms of the reference to Halloween 3. I can't believe that I didn't make that connection, because yeah. I love Halloween 3 as well. And I, <laughs> I find that whole section of the film as well to be really sinister. Yeah. But even in this film, it feels like something from a horror film. And like Halloween 3 gives us the appropriate reaction to this discovery, that the person that you think you're with is actually an android, in which mm. the character is horrified. Yeah. Nobody in this film is horrified by the fact that an important figure in their lives is an android yeah. it's just dealt with in such a matter of fact way but it's like oh of course she's an android and the only character that, we'll, we'll put well, you our, back our, together <laughs> exactly we'll put you back together and, and our main character as well knew about it the whole time it's essentially her keeper a maintenance worker for her really keeping her in check and i feel like it doesn't work on a story level because it doesn't add anything to the plot at that point it doesn't work on a character level because no character reacts to it or has any development as a result of that revelation. Yeah. Because to have made that work would be for Leslie to have not known. Exactly, yeah. And that's exactly right. So that we could have a reaction to it. And then the reaction to that gives him an insight into the world that suddenly makes him develop in the way that he needs to for the remainder of the film. Change yeah, yeah. in some way. Like that's the final key in his development process throughout the entire film. And that's the only way that that would work as a twist if that was built into it. The way that it is in here, I, th I feel like you almost need it up front as a way to set up the world. Yeah, it would have needed to be a thing. If you're going along with the premise that everyone knows, it would needed to be a thing at the start. Exactly, yeah. If that's right. And the only way I could think of including it is just as a way to kind of set the scene for the audience to say, look, look this character is an android. This is letting you know the type of world that we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah. You're establishing the rules. Exactly. Because, yeah. yeah, this is a film that does not establish its own rules. And no, it constantly changes no. its own rules as well. With that, if you're using it as a plot point where Leslie doesn't know, it would have been more appropriate for that character to have died then and for him yeah. to decide to not rebuild her and for her to have yeah. died in that scene because it would have been a cathartic moment for him letting go mm -hmm. and moving on yeah. and growing up. Growing up, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, for, for all we know, because I've not read any of these earlier drafts, that may have been a thing that they've just chucked away because they've overthought or assumed things and known their story too well that they've forgotten that everyone's going to be watching this for the first time yeah. without any prior information. <laughs> Do you think that we could fix toys? 
No. <laughs> totally I think, not. I think well, there are things I, like, I think you could fix it, but it would take so much work that it would, it would not be resemble anything. Thing. Yeah. yeah, it would be a completely different thing. Because <laughs> the thing is, like, there's so many ideas. There's ideas for about three films, four films in this that they've yeah. just shoved in. They just keep shoving crap in there. Thumbing it in, I would say. They're, yeah, thumbing it thumb, in. Thumbing it in. They just keep thumbing in more stuff. And you're like, I can't take any more. For example, that central idea of a character with a robot sister. You could just do a whole film about that. Absolutely. You can hang the film on that whole premise. Yeah. And the idea that somebody being raised in a toy factory where their best friend, unbeknownst to them, is a toy. Yeah. And is like the, the parting gift from their father. And it's like brilliant there's a story right there and that's what the film is about get rid of everything else and you do it in a very stylized fantasy way yeah whereas because this film flip-flops between fantasy and realism that idea is very sinister oh yeah definitely and i just yeah i I can't get over how unsettling that is especially because it's played off in a kind of family friendly way yeah although props to the look of it because that's actually a Rob Bottin effect I have no issues with the effect whatsoever yeah. and I especially really like the moment in which her head's on the floor yeah and yeah, she's yeah. still reacting like there's some very early face changing CGI at yeah, yeah. play there as well that is in my opinion I mean I did watch it on a DVD so it's not the highest of quality and I will say that this film was incredibly hard to get hold of as well yeah yeah <laughs> but um it looks really good, that really early rudimentary yeah, yeah. CGI of face-swapping a practical doll with a real human face really worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will actually say, I don't actually know that it is CGI. That's just me guessing. I thought it was yeah. some dis- digital work at play, but I'm wondering now if even the head on the floor with John Cusack's face, if that was actually still Rob Bottin. Yeah, that might be actually Rob Bottin and they've yeah. superimposed it like they've yeah there's quite a bit of digital animation in this anyway like yeah yeah all the skeletons there's that beach ball that opens up for that horrifying scene we were talking about before yep. there is definitely like semblances of early cgi but i still can't buy that this film was released at that time it just feels so much older in a lot of other ways yeah again i think it's just an issue of it being stuck in barry levinson's head from a certain time and he's just overthought it but he's not updated anything he's not brought the idea up to a contemporary level it's more so that it's a product of its time and in many ways the time had passed for it as well for his idea you even mentioned early on one of the things that you touched upon and we didn't talk about was the nurse character the uh, Mm. debbie what's her name debbie mazer debbie mazer character yeah who plays the nurse and the whole revelation with that character as well doesn't feel like it has any place in this type of film no i mean that whole general being in that tent where the fuck is it because there's no geography in that sense like is it part of the factory because it seems to be it feels like he just pops around the corner to see yeah his dad we don't ever get an exterior of that house it's just we see the tent inside this old manor room and like you say, it feels like it could just be an extension on the factory. Yeah, I, d- I don't know. Like we were talking about before with this, when the, the sea swine shoots the general and in what seems like a uh, a reshoot because the audience reacted so poorly, <laughs> the general is, well, seemingly alive, but in that weird, not quite alive state in that tent with his dad. It's like he's had a frontal lobe lobotomy. In another film where the style was more consistent, that could have worked. But yeah. because the style and tone is so inconsistent in this film and flip-flops between mm-hmm. fantasy and realism time and time again, it doesn't work. No, no, it it really doesn't. But yeah, and the revelation as well with Debbie Mazur is that she's actually sleeping with both LL Cool J and the General. 
more for yeah. catharsis for the general. <sighs> I mean... That whole section and this whole film that does just feel like this. It's just a series of happenings, a series of chaotically placed plot points. And she feels like she's just there as a catalyst to make LL Cool J turn from the bad side to the good side. Yeah. And that's it. But they do it in such a really gross, weird way. <laughs> yeah. Holy moly. But yeah, LL Cool J as well and his disappearing trick. <laughs> that gets old really fast. Yeah. In fact, the final joke of the whole film is hung on that premise. It's like, yes, this is strong enough that we're going to end with an LL Cool J disappearing joke. Well, I was going to say the actual film ends with a flying elephant tombstone. (laughs) And that tells you all you need to know about this film. That is actually from the feature as well. It was just them, I think, bringing in the actual prop via crane or helicopter. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, they decided to include it for the final shot of the film and the title sequence of this elephant being craned about it almost feels like prophetic that this white elephant is flying <laughs> in the midst of this landscape and I, I, like emphasis on white elephant because that's what yeah. this film is i've <sighs> i'm exhausted i am like, i am I'm pretty just, exhausted by this film because we've probably only talked about half the things that are in this film as well like there's so much other bullshit in this film that's <laughs> just there really is and I'm, I'm my notes as well once more because i've wrote my notes in a linear fashion as i've been watching the film my notes are just as chaotic as the film is so yeah. they're essentially all over the place there's no rhyme or reason to them i'm just reacting to the film as i'm watching it yeah. because everything is so incomprehensible and the plotting of the film is so manic and all over the place as are my notes so i'm struggling to find like a through line for the film itself to discuss <laughs> instead it's almost been like a bit a bit of chaos for us as well this is almost a taste of watching the film itself and there's other things as well with like there's the general when they're outside with uh, ll cool j and he's expressing his idea about the drones and then suddenly the fireworks go off and then there's this awkward ADR line, always bring a flare. <laughs> oh, I've got it written down as well, always bring a flare. I, but I remembered when I wrote it down, they mentioned it and how did this get made? Yeah. So I didn't want to mention it. Yeah. But also, because I think it's set up to be fireworks. Yeah. Uh, but because they're so poor and they don't have any of the impacts that the scene really demands, that monologue is supposed to demand, I think they added that in post as well, yeah. just to kind of describe how underwhelming those flows yeah. are. Or well. there's some other scene that's just missing that they've tacked that yeah. onto and they've tried to make it work with a bit of ADR. Yeah. And <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of that in the end in the battle sequence where there's it, it just feels like they didn't plan out the choreography properly for that battle sequence at the no. end. And the choreographer as well has his own credit. And for a, for a film with an actual choreographer credit, nothing feels like it's been blocked whatsoever or no. thought out or paced whatsoever. No. Okay. So I think anyway, we've kind of discussed as much as we can of toys and make as much sense of it. I mean, I think we could actually probably talk about it for another hour and 45 yeah, minutes. Yeah, let's not even begin to talk about the fact that when the general needs more space, the rooms just collapse in on themselves and get and the walls get moved. And also the scene in which he shoots his own foot off. Oh, God. It is never mentioned again. We don't even see him limp no. from that point onwards. And I will, I will say, though, the scene in which he shoots the fly that's on his foot that whole scene was reminiscent of an entire episode of Breaking Bad that I felt <laughs> influenced by, by, by that scene. 
So yeah, Toy is a very influential film because it's uh, <laughs> yeah. it predicts drones, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Nick the scene from it, and exactly. yeah, it influenced a scene from Breaking Bad. So there you have it. Not just the scene, the whole episode is oh, about really? one of the characters trying to kill a fly. Uh, it's actually one of the best Breaking Bad episodes as oh, well. Oh dear. So anyway, moving over to the release of this film and the <laughs> critical reception and also the box office reception, it's time for some stats and facts. So I have some information here about the film. In terms of the Rotten Tomatoes score, it's actually somewhat higher than I thought it would be. <laughs> at, at 30%. Very generous 30% there. It's about 29% more than it should be. And the average score is 4.05 out of 10. Which, again, it still feels generous. Yeah. The consensus is, like a colourful, over-engineered juju, it says goo-goo, Google. I don't know what that is. A Google? G-E-W-G-A-W? Any American members of the audience, please uh, text <laughs> messages. Please, please inform us of what us. a Google is. <laughs> so it says like... And don't worry if you don't know. <laughs> yeah, because we have no idea. Like a colourful over-engineered Google on the shelf, toys might look fun, but its seemingly limitless possibilities lead mainly to confusion and disappointment. And... The audience score is tellingly also 39%, Oof. and it has 2.88 out of 5, which again is too high. And the IMDb rating is 5.1 out of 10. Any thoughts about that, Andy? All of that's too high, although I would say that the audience score is actually um, appropriately low, because quite yeah. often on bad films, the audience score is actually quite high yeah. in comparison to the critic score, but on this occasion it is actually relatively low. Which speaks volumes, I think, for the um, for the film because I have I've read quite a lot of things online with people defending this film. Well, that, that's the thing as well that I was expecting when I was looking into it was I was expecting a far more positive reaction to this film just simply because of the defenses of the film that I have read and because it's a Robin Williams film that is rooted in people of our generation, the childhood. I was expecting to come across a lot more nostalgia based defenses of this film than is actually really represented in that audience score and the imdb score as well so again yeah like you mentioned it appropriately scored i would say in those regards and uh moving over to the box office i only had limited information about the box office so what i have done is i'll uh, give some information about the budget and what the overall box office in north america was but then i'm going to go through some of the films it was up against that week as well so the budget was $50 million, and the North American box office... Five zero. <laughs> that, that, yeah, sorry, that is five zero, $50 million. Yeah. So the opening weekend, it made just under $5 million, <laughs> and oh, no. its, North, its North American box office was $23 million overall. And it was released in December, December the 18th, 1992. So I will just go through what the box office of the film's in the charts were so these are all of the films that finished above toys so number one we have a few good men and number two we have under siege which was in its 11th weekend <laughs> in the charts and that was wow. number two i can't believe that and um and number three we have aladdin yeah uh, that was in its sixth weekend number four is home alone 2 lost in new york number five is forever young Number six is Last of the Mohicans. Number seven is Bodyguard. And finally, at number eight, so it debuted at number eight, Toys. Wow. 
That's quite a solid roster of releases for Christmas, isn't it, as well? Like, it really is. And I would say that just putting it up against those films as well, by uh, dating it against the likes of A Few Good Men, Aladdin, Home Alone 2, Last of the Mohicans, you really get a sense of how dated this film is, yeah. even for then. That always baffled me, even as a kid. Even just looking at the video box, it just looks like an 80s film. There's nothing to suggest, apart from a couple of, you know, like a bit of the CGI... There's nothing to suggest that it comes from 1992. Not whatsoever. And also, just talking about Aladdin, Toys is the film that caused the whole Disney-Robin Williams rift. Yes, yes it is. Uh, Because he didn't want his image, or his character's image as well, to be advertised on... I think it was more than 25% of the film's advertising. that's it, yeah. yeah. Uh, Because he knew that this film was going to be coming up against yeah aladdin toys was going to be going up against aladdin he didn't want that conflict uh, yeah he definitely <laughs> backed the wrong horse there <laughs> most certainly yeah i can i can see why on paper because he yeah. does come across as a principled human being i really like robin williams everybody really likes robin williams he was a wonderful actor and i will say as well that the death of robin williams was one of those actor deaths that really profoundly affected yeah, me it did, yeah. and every now and again even when i watch a robin williams film now i still get a sense of that feeling of loss because i just enjoy watching him so much and he was so much of a part of my childhood that when he died i felt like something in all of us collectively went as well like when these huge influences in your life do go and i do feel like he is a principled human being so Backing Barry Levinson, his friend as well, who had um, really, I think he got an Oscar nomination for Good Morning Vietnam as well. Yeah. Going from there, I can see why he wanted to back toys as being the film that was going to make the cultural difference. Yeah, and on paper, you're backing a something that should be championed in a sense, which is a big budget original film with very original ideas. Something that has a vision. I'm, I'm, yeah. just, I'm don't know why I'm saying it like this, but yeah, it's <laughs> you know, on paper, it should be the yeah. one that's championed against the corporate Disney. <laughs> it's another version of Aladdin. Exactly, yeah. A story that's just become a pantomime, and that's mm. that's what it's going up against. On paper, yeah, yes, on certainly. paper. And we're definitely emphasizing on paper. On paper. <laughs> yeah. And that paper's really small, just really tiny. It smells of shit. (laughs) It's a toilet paper. And it's not even double ply, it's single ply. Yeah, it's already been used. Your finger can really just slip (laughs) right through it. (laughs) Okay, so Andy, do you have any final thoughts about toys? Um, Is it a film that you would recommend to our audience? (laughs) (laughs) No, this is a film to avoid. Like no. against all costs, because it's oh, it's a real tough watch, and it will haunt your dreams. It's just not good. I mean, even if you're a fan of Robin Williams, it's not a good Robin Williams film. I mean, it's not even a Robin Williams film. It's a Michael Gambon film featuring Robin Williams. So, and the thing is, I like a lot of the people involved in this film. You know, like I like Joan Cusack. I mean, yep. there should be more Joan Cusack in films anyway. Like Michael Gambon, like Robin Wright, yeah. like Barry Levinson as well. Yeah. I can't, I, I don't know. I need to lie down now. It's just... <laughs> That's right. I will say that if you did want to experience what a nervous breakdown felt like, you're probably best just having a nervous breakdown than watching yeah. <laughs> toys. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably a better experience all around. 
I will also say as well that the film gave me a kind of feeling that I get when I watch the likes of Hereditary and like an A24 horror film feel. Yeah, it gets under your skin. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's just crawling there. So, yeah, I definitely would not recommend this film. As far as listening to us about it, this probably captures just an ounce of how manic and just awful this film really is. So, no, I can't recommend it whatsoever. No. Okay, so that's everything that we can actually talk about on Toys Today without actually having a nervous breakdown yeah. ourselves. I'm starting to get so the shakes already. We- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like I'm lapsing into a diabetic coma. That's what this film was also is like. It's like somebody had a fever dream when they lapsed into totally. a diabetic coma whilst going through Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. So, yeah, next week we are doing a change of pace once more. We're actually revisiting a past episode by going back to one of our previously recorded but never released episodes of Best Forgotten Movies. And we will actually be reviewing Prometheus. I actually remember I put together a trailer for this episode and never released it. That's really (laughs) giving our audience blue balls. So, released a trailer for the episode and then didn't release the episode. I really do apologise. A lot of people have asked us when this was going to be released. We're finally going to be releasing it next week. Yeah, there's that photo on our Facebook page of the two microphones, and that was um, from that time. It was. Yeah, we're sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But until then, it's a bye from myself, (laughs) and an exasperated sigh from Andy. Fuck you, Barry Levinson. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Fuck you, Barry Levinson, and thank you for listening.